Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Riches and honor come from you alone, for you rule everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is at your discretion that people are made great and given strength. Lord, we ask that you speak to our hearts and teach us to learn the values and attitudes we should have for you, for what you have entrusted to us. Make us good stewards of our handling of the money that you have given us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, because God cares for us, he gave us guidelines uh, for handling money. The Bible contains more than 2,350 verses dealing with money and possessions. Uh, Jesus taught more about money than most any other subject. The Lord said so much about money and possessions for spiritual reasons and very practical reasons. And how we handle our money has a big impact on the, the intimacy of our relationship with Jesus. In Luke 16, 11, we find, if you have not been faithful in the use of worldly wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Well, what is the true riches? The true riches is an intimate time with Jesus Christ. And money becomes a primary competitor with Christ for the lordship of our lives. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both man and God, God and money. Uh, let's start with uh, the, the reading, and uh, Nick's got the microphone today. One, at the center of the universe is a God of incalculable glory. The existence, that, the existence that dominates the universe is not ours, but God's. It is this perspective that must shape, or for some of us, reshape, the way we think about money. Life is not first about our wants, desires, dreams, purposes, expectations, or plans. Life is about God's will, God's purpose, God's pleasure, and God's glory. We must not and cannot look at money separately from the ultimate reality of life, the existence of God. We were created by God according to his wise design and for his wise purpose. Our lives don't belong to us as we please, uh, for us to use as we please. Because we were created by God, we belong to God, and because our money belongs to God, we don't have the right to use and invest it however we please. Our money problems begin with viewing money in isolation from this profound core truth and from, loving in, from living with a sense of ownership that is never true of a creature. You see, you don't start understanding and addressing money problems with education and budget. There are many important things to understand about money, and a personal budget can be, can be practically helpful, but it cannot be our starting point. Addressing the issue of money and understanding money problems don't begin with money and budget information. They begin with surrender. You and I will never use money the way it was meant to be used, and we will never break disastrous money habits if we are not living in light of the fact that life is not about us. 
Well, that would be like uh, teaching a little boy to throw a football, but not helping him to understand the basic purposes, rules, and fundamentals of the game. You could have all kinds of money information and still be tragically mastered by it. You could have a clear sense of how to budget your funds and still not be uh, thinking about and using money in the way God intended. Now I've got a question for you. I hope you've been listening to all this. How, how do you view God and money? I believe I'm a steward of what he gives me. So I just use it wisely, not for Pete. Well, God expects us to be good stewards of what we, he's given us. And that is one of the things that Crown teaches very often. Um, I, when I think of um, tithes, offerings, giving to the Lord uh, with finances, it's a trust issue um, for me with him. It's, I have to trust that he is going to provide, and I have to just be obedient to what he's calling me to do. And I would add uh, to that, it has to be with a, with a heart that is a heart filled with joy to give. That was a challenge for me as a young man, you know, thinking that, you know, I'd give, but I'd give with a clutching hand um, to the Lord and say, you know, I think I could probably manage this better than you is what I was saying with that clutching hand early in my walk. Um, so it's, there's truly a joy that should be associated with it. I agree with that, too. That's very important that our heart attitude is right. And what we give as we give out of thanksgiving to God, <clears throat> and actually it's an act of worship when we give back to God what He is a portion of what He has entrusted to us. Amen. Okay, let's move on with the reading. Uh, number two, we live in a world terribly broken by sin. We will fail to properly understand money and the money problems that ensnare us if we ignore or minimize the fact that we live in a world so broken by sin that it does not function in any dimension in the way that God originally intended. In this broken world, money is not just used, it is misused. Money temptations greet us every day. Money lies are told to us every day. Money is presented to us as the savior that it can never be. Every day millions of us are seduced into asking money to do for us what only God can do. But the brokenness is not just external, it is internal. Sin is first a matter of the heart. It changes the way we think and what we desire. Wow. Right? It alters what we desire and what we worship. Sin causes us to be more controlled by what we want than by what God has commanded. And sadly, sin turns all of us into idol worshipers who put things in the creation in the place only the Creator should inhabit in our hearts. And there are few idols more powerful than money. Uh, Paul Tripp, uh, Tripp adds this. The world wasn't first created to be a vehicle for realizing our personal definition of happiness. Money was created for the sole purpose of bringing into our lives all the things we crave. If we don't start with surrender, even if we're not in debt, 
we will use money in a way that God never intended. In this way, maybe many of us have more money problems than we realize. We think we're okay because we are able to pay the price of of our pleasures, but we're not okay because what shapes how our money matters is a spirit of ownership rather than a spirit of surrender. The first step in money sanity is surrendering to the glory of the of one greater than you. Uh, question: What would you change in your thinking about money? Hopefully, I'm learning. But I think one of the deceptions I've always thought of is if I just had more, you know, if I just had more, then then things would get better. And um, I've, I've read somewhere, and I think, it, I think it's true, that above the poverty line, there's just not a correlation between the amount of money you, you have and happiness or joy. I, I just don't think there's a correlation, you know, so. You know, Paul, I can add in there that uh, from a sinful perspective, I've seen at times if I've had a stretch of uh, being properly frugal and also having the difficulties of whatever situation I'm going through, I can break from the good, the, the good servant, the, the diligent one to make sure that it's God's money and fall into the trap, the sinful trap of I deserve this, whatever this is, and you kind of break out of whatever your system that you've created to demonstrate that it's good stewardship. And so in that, I, I have to fight against that sinful idea that I can reward myself with additional money if I've worked hard and I've been through a difficult season, if that money go, even if that money goes outside of my budget, if that makes sense. Yeah. One of the things that um, most of us uh, go to first and we're thinking about handling our money is, is a budget. Well, we're not going to cover any budgeting in this next few weeks of this class because the issue is not with putting together a budget. The issue is right here with the heart. And uh, I can go back and tell you a number of stories of people that I worked with when I was uh, working with Crown who um, handled money very wrong. And it was part of what we did was to try to help them get the heart change and then to figure out where they were in their budget. But uh, we won't be doing that part in the class. However, uh, one of the things I did with Crown was to teach uh, budget coaches to do budget coaching. And uh, I would be more than happy to sit down with anyone who has reached the point where they're they're willing to make changes and do the things that God is asking them to do. Uh, I would be happy to help them put together a budget and uh, give them a third-party look at um, what things in their budget could could be uh, taken away. And something a lot of times people didn't like what I came up with because they still had their hand on the money and they didn't want to let it go. Okay, let's move on to n- number three. God offers us his heart and life-transforming grace. We live in a world where, God, where sin exists, but we also live in a world where grace abounds. God sent his son to die, to live, die, and rise again so that you and I 
would have everything we need to live, love, and serve God intended between the already of our conversion and the not yet of our final kingdom. The reality of our present, of our ever-present grace is so encouraging because our sin isn't just an environmental issue. It's more significantly a matter of the heart. I may be able to escape the money temptation on a certain day, but I have no ability to escape my own heart. You see, it's always the sin inside me that makes the temptation outside me so hard to faithfully resist. The work of grace is heart change, and since heart change is the only way our behavior changes in a lasting way, God's grace offers us the only hope of real change when it comes to our personal finances. There is no mountain of debt so big that God's grace isn't bigger. There is no money problem pit so deep that God's grace isn't deeper. As we face money problems, we don't need to panic. We don't need to be paralyzed by fear. We don't have to deny reality to get some peace. We don't have to relieve our consciences by shifting the blame. And we don't have to cynically abandon hope. We can face our money issues with hope, not because we are wise or able, but because God is. And he offers us his forgiving, rescuing, and transforming grace. Uh, Paul Tripp also says, because God's grace carries with it a message of fresh starts and new beginnings, we don't have to give up or give in. We can resist temptation. We can confess the idolatry of our hearts. We can give ourselves to new and better habits. We can say no to fear and rest in the presence and the power of our Lord. We can, getters can become givers, controllers can live lives of surrender. We can climb out of debt. God's grace opens the door to a whole new relationship with money for each of us. Not because we are good and deserve it, but because God is that good and he offers us grace that is that powerful. That's a positive statement in my mind that there is hope if, if you see no hope in, in your financial situation. Uh, here's the next question. Has your trust in God's grace empowered you to address wrong money habits and give yourself to a brand new money lifestyle? And you know the gentleman teaching the course? (laughs) And he knows the story. Uh, When we moved to Phoenix, uh, we came with five children. We came, bought very conservatively in a home uh, because Paul was going to be starting over again. We were in real estate in Minnesota, coming out of a Honeywell layoff and starting in real estate. And we were kind of tight. So we got here very carefully, trusting the Lord. but things just went sour and sour and more sour, and Paul would work anything he could, and we just couldn't get anywhere. I begged him to go back to work as a nurse because I could bring some good income in on a weekend or something, and he stood by that word and said, no, God said he will provide through me. It was very difficult to trust that. I was fearful. I really liked to have that umbrella over my head for sure and I knew that God was there but we weren't sure how we are going to do that but God did show that grace and mercy 
to us and our five children in a way that we had, would never have learned it had we not been living at basically week to week. Most of that time, we were blessed somehow by a miracle that God gave something to help us through. So, yes, his grace is sufficient, and if we stick to the commandments and stay to the word, he, he'll take it through rough times, but he didn't, he didn't abandon us. We took care of us. Every time I hear her tell that story, my emotions kind of go right up to here. I was just kind of thinking back about that period of time when things were so difficult for us. But God was uh, uh, good, and uh, we learned a lot, and we moved ahead and into a, a different uh, time of our life. And we have plenty of stories we can tell you about how God met those needs during that time, but I don't have that as part of the, the lesson today. Anybody else with an uh, answer? <coughs> Let's move on to number four. We were created to live for something bigger than ourselves. I don't think it's possible to overstate the importance of this piece of a Christian worldview and its application to the world of money. As sinners, we all share the same problem. We stick ourselves in the middle of our world, and we make life all about us. And often without knowing it, we want God to finance what we think will bring us pleasure. Comfort and happiness, uh, pleasure, comfort, and happiness. When God seems to finance our pleasures, we praise him. And when he doesn't, we tend to question his goodness and back away from the pursuit of him. Few of us would be so arrogant as to say that everything in creation was made for us to use as we wish, but in ways that are subtle or not so subtle, we live as though that's what we think. The core of financial sanity is knowing that our money doesn't belong to us, but is just another thing in our lives, given to us by God, but to be used for his purpose and pleasure. Why is it easier to make a purchase for ourselves than to give the same amount of money to someone in need? Why do most of us own more clothes than we need or eat more food than is healthy? Why do we envy wealthy people? Why do many of us cheat a little bit on our taxes? Why are many of us in greater debt than we should be? Why are we carrying so many credit cards with such large balances? Why have our cars quit being just modes of transportation and become identity boats, physical evidence of our success? Why, for most of us, does income always seem to chase lifestyle? You know, you get a raise, and you think you'll have so much extra money, but in a few months, you're once again spending more than you make. Why do few of us regular, few of us give regularly to our churches or are stingy when it comes to tipping people who provide us services? <coughs> Why do we ever consider incurring debt in order to take a vacation? Why are so few of us ever satisfied with what we have, constantly dreaming of more and better? Why is money a significant problem for so many of us? <coughs> C 
could it be that at street level, the place where we make all those micro decisions that end up determining the substance and direction of our lives, we have lost sight of the fact that we were designed by God to live for something bigger than ourselves. Our lives were meant to be shaped by things that transcend the boundaries of our little plans and pleasures. The pleasure of someone vastly bigger and better was meant to be what would please us most and shape the way we live. Our money was meant to be connected to this bigger thing. Our use of money was to be shaped not just by personal need or pleasure, but more foundationally by transcendent realities. I'd like everyone to turn to Romans 8, 1 through 7, and also to Galatians 5, 16 to 17, to follow along as the uh, reader uh, reads those verses. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did it by sending his Son, his own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, but but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For, though, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enemy, intimately against God, for, all, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And Galatians five sixteen and 17. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Uh, at the bottom of your uh, page there, you see question number four, and that's the one we're going to talk about at this point in time. Uh, God's grace empowers us to face our self-created financial difficulties. Except, explain why and how does Romans 8, 1 to 7, and Galatians 5, 16 and 17 address this? I was just thinking about the fact that, you know, we know that money in and of itself isn't evil. God, I mean, there are financial systems that have existed from the very beginning. And so it's not the fact that money exists or that there is a process for exchanging money to get goods that we legitimately need, that we logistically need to both survive and to 
um, and to take care of to take care of our families but God has provided us with an opportunity to play out what really is in our hearts and it's so it's fascinating you know when just thinking about these verses you had us read Paul you know God knows what happens when it's given to us so we get it and then it's like okay well here you go what are you going to do with it and then at that point we get to physically demonstrate what's going on in our hearts by the way that we choose to spend the money so the money's not obviously not the problem but it, it's not certainly an opportunity that probably both uh, reveals um, responsibility and selfishness and greed and it's just not money I mean there are people who are good at handling money but are bad at handling other parts of our life too so uh, it's it's a condition of our heart and that you know whatever our heart is that's where that's how we're going to handle stuff and if our heart is right with the Lord we're going to handle it the best we can through him if it's not then we're going to just mess things up It's really more of a question because I was just thinking about what Pete just said. So money's a mirror to some degree then. And that it was just kind of an aha. A mirror we don't like to stand in front of? <laughs> One last thing. It, it is, but didn't God, I mean, God I mean, set up a provision way back in the Old, Old Testament to, to fund the, the tabernacle and the, the, the temple, so there is a money system that he allows to work, and it, if it's done right. You could kind of say it's a kingdom money system? King, a kingdom-minded money system? So the question asks, you know, how God, how God's grace empowers us to face our self-created financial difficulties. Well, that's the, um, that's the key there. Our self-created financial dif difficulties are because we are self-focused often. And so being self-focused, we're not spirit-focused. And so the way that God empowers us to face self-created financial difficulties is he empowers us by his spirit to change our focus from ourselves to focus on pleasing him and giving thanks to him. One second. Okay. So in line with that, um, this, these verses talked about living by the spirit as opposed to living by the flesh. So living by the flesh is living by the natural mind and what the natural mind would do. Um, living by the spirit is is living according to what the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit would guide us in all things, right? So, um, you know, that just sets up a completely different dynamic. It's, it's like, you know, we're, we're relying on the power of God rather than just a self-reliance um, as we live by the Spirit to guide us in our finances. We're working in the back. Um, I think... Um, with lots of difficulties, not just financial difficulties, 
Um, God will, because of our sinful nature, we create issues with whatever this particular, this topic, money. I think God allows that so that we can eventually realize that that money isn't going to get us where we want to be or give us what we want or need, and we end up on our knees turning to him, just like in any difficulty. that It, it just overwhelms us, right? And then it's like, I don't know what to do with this. I can only go to God at this point, right? Even though I try to be my own God and handle it myself, right? Uh, we just eventually we'll get to that point of we don't care and we'll continue in our sinful nature or we'll turn to God for the grace that we need. Here, here. I, uh, it's been on my mind lately a lot, um, but like growing up, I was thinking through like what's heaven going to be like and t- for a while I think I thought it was going to be like really boring like like we're going to be worshiping God or whatever and I'm like I'd rather you know be like playing video games or something um, but more recently it's been on my mind like learning like you know those hobbies and things that we like to spend our money on that we enjoy and like they're not necessarily bad um, we can idolize them though very easily but I was just thinking like in heaven I think we we are apart from all of our sinful desires of things that we like seek and try to find joy in and like God becomes that true like desire and that that person that we get our full joy out of and that can happen now too but we're obviously like very imperfect at it um, and being satisfied with him so well, that reminds me of a story. And the story is about when this man who died was going to go to heaven. And you know, you've been told that you can't take it all with you. Well, he decided he was going to take some gold with him. So he got up to the pearly gates and he met St. Peter. And he, St. Peter was giving him a, a, a tour of heaven. And he looked at us and says, oh, I see you brought some pavement with you. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I think uh, <clears throat> I think uh, for for a lot of people, even even this topic or anyone who's done like Dave Ramsey and stuff like that, where eventually you try to get your life in order, um, it's a great it's a great place to start. But I think just like with any other skill or gift, is as you become more skilled, you then should turn those skills towards outwards towards others and um, trying to move the kingdom forward. And I think additionally, a thing that people don't think about is that money is being used far better by the enemy um, to try to tear at the kingdom than by those who are are trying to move it forward. And um, we, I mean, we see what money and greed and all those things do, but, but even in ways people don't think of, uh, I work in finance in my first financial position. Um, You take calls and People donate, people that are very wealthy, donate a lot of money to charity. And um, I remember one time being sick to my stomach. Here I am filling out uh, something like $25,000 donation to Planned Parenthood. Um, And I'm thinking, how many, you know, how many abortions did this just fund? And so the enemy is using money tactfully and well, and it's advancing and marching forward. Um, And I think if if we manage our money well, it's not just that we're comfortable or satisfied or 
even just have a, a better heart with God, it's that now we can fulfill and obey and do things for God um, in obedience to God proactively that we otherwise couldn't um, and, um, and, and hopefully fight the enemy. Um, all the things that people have been sharing have reminded me, you know, the same man who wrote Romans 8 and Galatians 5 also wrote Philippians 4, and he said, I've learned to be content. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I have a lot, sometimes I don't have much, but I'm content because of Christ. And everybody's been sharing things, and suddenly that just was a big aha for me. Okay, I'm okay, looking at your uh, handout on the uh, Question number one, I've kind of given you an answer there, and let's have the next person in line to read uh, read that question, and then I think it's blue on your handout. Uh, what do you think no one is truly open-minded means? No one is truly open-minded. Everyone carries with them a worldview that shapes their understanding of everything. Everyone is a philosopher, everyone is a theologian, all are meaning makers. We never leave our lives alone. We constantly dig through the pile of our experiences, seeking to make sense of what was, has happened and is happening to us. We form positions on everything, and those positions shape the decisions we make, the actions we take, and the words we say. Let's go back to the question. What do you think... Uh, no one is truly open-minded means to you. Is there anybody want to add to that answer? Okay. We, we all have a starting point that's informed. It's impossible to have a blank slate. It's impossible to have a blank slate. And we have God's word on that. He says that creation understands that there's a creator, that... Um, we we know the God who's created everything. Creation tells us what's visible informs us of the power of the invisible. We can't erase that. And so we're without excuse. To be without excuse presumes knowledge of something and a standard of something. So as you're you know, reading through Romans chapter 1, God has given us creation and we can never escape from it because we are part of that creation. Every time we look at the mirror, every time we have a conscious thought, it's a reminder that there is a creator because we're a creation. And furthermore, what separates us from the rest of the creation that we see and are a part of is that we have a conscience. Knowledge. There's a level of knowledge that God has given us because we image the God who made us. And because we image the God who made us, we know the God who made us. doesn't mean we're in a right relationship with him. But we cannot erase what God has revealed. To, to, not, to say that you have an open mind, if you define that as, I'm absolutely starting with a blank slate, is to say that what God has clearly revealed cannot be seen. And I'm going to take God's word and not someone else's on that. One of the things we taught in Crown was that uh, God owns everything, and every, everything is his. So he just gives us the money to hold and, uh, and use wisely. The 
bottom line is he asks us to be good stewards of what he's given us. Uh, and you and I will never understand money well and use it well apart from the protective cords of God's existence and plan if we take it as belonging to, to us and for us. And um, we will, I'm going to, we're going to, unless somebody else has something else to say. Okay, go ahead. I really appreciated what Brandon said about revisiting what heaven looks like. Right? Um, people will give, be given charge over things. There's a work principle in creation before sin. And in a sinless heaven, we will have uh, certain levels of, of authority and reporting. Um, those aren't sinful. We, we're going to work. We are going to work. And the scripture says, where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, where Jesus says that. And so that's the true tr- treasure. And there's an admonition that Paul gives to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 that just keeps coming back in my mind. It says, as for the rich in this present age, so it's qualified, the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. To be rich and good works. Why? That way we're generous and ready to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So there's this aspect of doing good works now. It stores up treasure later. That's heaven. And that means you take hold of that which is truly life, not that which presumes to be life or presents itself as life but it isn't really life the temporary aspects of this world and that's essentially the closing point as a pastor Paul is mentoring Timothy on and handling his congregation well that's a good summation for today's class Um, next week we're going to be uh, talking about four identities It's chapter two in the book, and if you are a reader at all, I recommend very strongly that you buy the book and that you read it because there's a lot we have to leave out in order to fit the discussion into a 45-minute segment. And uh, it also will give you a reminder of what we uh, did here today and what we had to talk about. So let's close in prayer now. Lord, help us to adopt your way of thinking about money. Help us to be good stewards of what you have entrusted to us. Give us a more intimate relationship with Christ, the true riches in life. Help us to give Jesus the lordship of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.